find somebody that can do a skill, whatever skill it is, 80 to 90% as good as you, then it's time to give it to them. And it's time for you to do something that's going to maybe make a bigger impact on the business because you're never going to be able to grow running a business unless you can develop and train people to do what you're currently doing in your business. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and my guest today is Doug Karras, owner and CEO of Arizona Painting Company. He and co-owners Joe Campbell and Joe Miller have grown the company from around 40 people to a team of almost 300 since they bought the company in 2014, becoming one of the largest house painting companies in Arizona. Even more impressive is how they've maintained their high standards through that growth. With a culture of success and a reputation for exceptional customer service that's earned them the number one spot from ranking Arizona for seven years running. We'll hear how they did it along with Doug's advice for entrepreneurs who want to start their own painting company in this episode. Let's get into the conversation. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Excited to be here with you guys. So to get things started, tell us how you got started in the painting industry and eventually came to own your own company. Yeah. So I was 19 years old living in Michigan and always knew I wanted to own my own business. And I got an opportunity. A family friend was running a painting company down in Atlanta and he offered me a job to move down there. And so I started out painting during the day and then cold calling, knocking on doors during the evenings, setting up free estimates. So that's how I got really started. And from there, spent the next five or six years kind of doing every position in our company, sales, office, project management. And then in 2014, my mentor and kind of the person I was working for for the last few years before that, he was ready to sell and ready to retire. So he sold the business to me and my two other partners in 2014. Incredible. So talk to me about that process of ultimately buying the company. What was the total cost to purchase it? And how did you go about financing that investment? We valued the business at around $3.2 million at the time, which, you know, the numbers we do, I think we do a better job today of really having the right numbers and knowing our numbers a little better. But still, regardless, might have been a little high valuation, but we valued it at that. And the three of us, we each bought 25%. So one of my partners currently, he already owned 25%. So the three of us bought the additional 75 that our former owner owned. And the total cost for my 25% was 800000 And very fortunate that, you know, my mentor and the guy that's selling the business to us, he financed it over 10 years. So I had to pay him basically $80,000 a year for 10 years. And we fortunately, we actually paid him off a couple of years early. So we paid him off uh, about a year and a half wow. ago. Yeah. So it worked out, worked out really good. Congrats on being able to get that paid off a little bit early. That's always a nice little burden to have off the plate. Uh, absolutely. Talk to me about the company's growth. We hit some of the numbers in the introduction, but I just want to hear your side of the story of that growth from 2014. Yeah, absolutely. So our first year, there wasn't much growth, right? It was three of us kind of taking the reins and really learning what it means to really be the ones that everything falls on, whether it's good or bad or owning your own business. So it took us a couple of years to really get some momentum. But yeah, we have grown a lot, and especially in the last couple of years. But when we first started the business, we took it over at about 40, 45 employees. And today we're 200 and 70, 280 employees total company-wide. And we went from having one location in Chandler outside of Phoenix. And now we have five different locations. So we've got another office in the west side of Phoenix. We've got an office down in Tucson, an office in Las Vegas, and then a company we recently purchased in Albuquerque, New Mexico that we're now operating in New Mexico as well. 
Wow. You mentioned that the first year or two there of that transition into ownership, what was the biggest challenge of that transition and how did you overcome it? The hardest challenge is going from, you know, having a big personality, right? Our former boss and mentor, he was a, you know, a big personality, a great leader that we always knew we could look to. And I think the biggest challenge was for us, the three of us growing in our own leadership skills, right? I know just for me personally, you know, I looked at the business even when I was an employee, like it was my own business, but it's very different when, you know, everything really <laughs> falls on decisions you make uh-huh. on how well you do. So yeah, I think just our leadership and just our skills needed to improve. So that was the, probably the toughest transition initially. Looking at the company's growth since 2014, what would you identify as the main driver of it? And why do you think that was so crucial in building the company to where it is today? I think the main driver for us was people. You know, I talked about the first couple of years and us not maybe growing very fast, especially not growing close to the percentage we're growing at today. And I think we've really realized that we've got to have really good people on our team and we've got to you know, improve our processes from hiring and finding the right people. And I think that's really been the key. I mean, we've got awesome people, awesome leaders in our company. We've set up some great incentives and great ways to, you know, offer them a chance to be really successful if they grow their teams and grow their sides of the business that they're in control of. And I think that's been the biggest thing is just our people and having the right people. What would you say has been the biggest mistake that you've made as an owner? And what did you learn from that experience? In hindsight, what could you have done to avoid having to go through that experience? I'd say one of the biggest mistakes initially, really in the beginning, was keeping you know maybe the wrong people too long and keeping them in positions that they shouldn't be in for too long. You know, we really realized that why we've grown is we found really good leaders and we've developed and and have some really good leaders in our company today. But I think initially the biggest mistake is just you know we always want to give people an opportunity and really coach them and help them get better. But I think a lot of people we maybe spent too long when they just maybe weren't going to be the right people. You know. In Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he says, you know, you got to have the right people first and you got to have the right seats on the bus. And I think we initially had some of the people that may have been the right people, but we didn't have them in the right seats. And I think we've done a better job of that recently in the last few years. And I can only imagine some of those people issues have become making sure to get that right, I guess, as the company has grown has been really, really important. How have you gone about learning that while also maintaining the growth? I'd say that the you know, biggest thing has been just developing coaching our people and our leaders in our company and really holding them accountable to key metrics and we call them in our business KPIs, so key performance indicators that we have and really holding them accountable and, and driving and, and coaching and helping them get to those KPIs has been the biggest thing that's helped us do that. As we've talked about the growth here, you know, you went from one location to five locations. How are you keeping track of the entire business without getting overwhelmed in the details? Like what systems or strategies would you recommend to other owners as they grow to the size of of Arizona Painting Company? I'd say number one is we have a really good CRM system. So customer relationship management system where, you know, I can pull reports right now and see basically every, you know, main data point that I want to see in each one of our businesses, each one of our branches right now. I could go online and just pull that up. Whether I want to see how many leads we got today, how much we're producing today, what our job costing is, how much we've spent in paint today on any job that I want to see. I can look at pictures of any job. So I really think in that our CRM system, Service Titan, that's been a big way we've been 
able to handle the growth and be able to really know our numbers. So I think that's, you know, big reason that we don't get overwhelmed because we know our numbers and we drive those and we've got really good leaders in each of our kind of businesses or business units that are running a branch that are really great leaders and really on top of their game when it comes to running their business inside the bigger business. Quick reminder for our listeners that if you're enjoying this podcast, you can let us know that by leaving a review. Reviews help us stay on top of the rankings and grow our audience so we can keep providing top quality business content for you, our listeners. Doug, I want to take a step back for any of our listeners who might be starting to think about starting a painting company themselves. Can you talk about, from your vast experience in the industry, how much money they might need to think about getting themselves to get started and what those kind of main startup expenses for a new painting company might be? I would say a good number that would really put you in a good financial position starting a painting company would be, you know, at the minimum $50,000, but really a better cushion would be to have $100,000 in a bank account. And some of the main expenses you're going to, your startup expenses, obviously you have all your business licenses, getting workers comp, insurances, all of that, but really starting to, you know, develop a brand, you know, add some vehicles, office space, you know, leasing, whether you're leasing or if you look to buy a building that you obviously would need a lot more for a down payment normally. And then also just having working capital. You try to, you know, you say you, you ramp up, you hire one crew and maybe then a second crew. You really need to make sure you have working capital in case you're waiting on, you know, money to be collected from a job you did. Or if you start doing some commercial work, it's going to take longer for that money to come in. So that would be what I'd say for, you know, money you'd need to start from scratch. But I also, somebody's really looking to start a painting company, I would recommend looking into purchasing a company that, you know, maybe it's somebody that's looking to retire, somebody that's maybe just burnt out and doesn't want to keep doing it. So at least you have a base level and you already have some systems in place and you have some employees. I would definitely recommend that somebody looking to do that over just starting from scratch. Now, is that something that somebody could do if they don't have hands-on experience in the industry? Do you think it would be wise of them to go purchase a painting company as their entry point or should they go get that hands-on experience before they kind of dive in that way? I would say yes. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I would say they could, but also yes, they need that hands-on experience. But you could, you know, you could set a deal with, you know, somebody looking to retire or sell their business where they have to stay on maybe for a month, three months, six months a year, whatever you want, and where they have to teach you that hands-on experience. So you could, I think you could still get both of those and still be able to, to do that along with getting that hands-on experience. But yes, you do need to know the basics of the business for sure. Can you talk to me about the different types of must-have equipment for a painting business? Someone who has no experience in the industry might be like, well, you need some brushes, some rollers, and some paint. But obviously, there's significantly more involved in that. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, those things you do need, but you also need ladders, right? Step ladders, extension ladders, depending on what type of jobs you're going to do. You normally need some type of, you know, small scaffolding. Most companies are going to do some spraying. So you need a, you know, airless sprayer, painting exteriors. You're going to need pressure washers. That's probably some of the main equipment you'd need getting started. Eventually, you know, you may, you know, we've purchased this year, we purchased our first boom lift because we're doing a lot more commercial work, like large buildings and where there might be 30, 40, 50 feet high. So we purchased a boom lift. That would be later down the road. Initially, though, ladders, brushes, rollers, and then at least a sprayer and a pressure washer. What does Arizona Painting Company do differently from other companies? And how does that give you your competitive edge? 
Well, I think one of the main things we do differently, or, or maybe I feel like when we do it right, we do it better is, you know, number one would be our core values, but number two would be our, just our guarantee that we offer to customers. So we guarantee that we're going to show up when we promise with a smile on our face, we provide same day written quotes. We give you daily project updates. All jobs get an initial and final inspection by a foreman. We have a same day response. So you reach out to us, we're going to get back to you the same day and we leave every customer a paint care home touch-up kit with a couple labeled cans in a little nice, you know, neat box that they get to keep our logo on it. So if they ever need to reach out to us in the future, they have that right there. But those six things, that's our guarantee that we we guarantee to our customers. And I think a lot of painting companies can say they do maybe a few of those, but not all six of them consistently. And I think that's one of the things that definitely separates us as a company. Can you talk to me about the difference between residential and commercial jobs? I mean, I think that, again, somebody sitting outside the industry might be like, one is bigger than the other, but I'm sure there's other differences. What are those? And and is one better for a new painting business to start with? Yeah, I would say residential is probably better for a new business getting started because you get paid quicker. Okay. So yes, they're smaller jobs, but you get paid quicker and there's a little bit less risk with a residential job than a commercial job. Residential job goes bad, well, you might be out a couple thousand dollars. But if a, a commercial job goes bad and you have some major issues or maybe you really underbid it, it could cost you tens of thousands of dollars pretty quickly depending on the size of job. So yeah, I'd say residential would be better for a, a brand new painting company starting out. So those numbers are really interesting to me to give a sense of scope. I'm also wondering if you could give us a sense of are the revenue versus profit numbers, do they scale the same or are residential jobs more or less profitable or are commercial jobs, is that commercial jobs? Yeah, it really depends. Um, residential repaint jobs, which is what we do. Most all of our residential is all repaints. We don't do any residential new construction. But yeah, in profit margins, you should be between 45 and 50% profit margins on those. Commercial repaint, which there's a difference, commercial new construction and commercial repaint, which we do mostly commercial repaint. The profit margins there usually between 40, but they can you know be up to 45 to 50% as well. But they're normally closer to 40 to 45 percent. The difference though is, you know, our net profit, right? Net profit is usually going to be a little bit higher on commercial jobs because it takes a lot less coordination. You know, you're doing, you know, say three $20,000 jobs, you know, that's going to like take a lot less kind of back end and overhead people managing that versus doing 15 to 20 residential jobs. It's easier to do, but again, there is a little bit more risk that comes with that. I want to ask you a little bit about attracting those customers, both residential and commercial, but I guess we'll start with kind of the bigger overarching umbrella there of advertising. What is your typical advertising spend in a typical month and what outlets are you utilizing for that investment? We do do a lot of advertising. We're usually somewhere in the range of 7 to 10% of our revenues is what we typically spend. So in each branch or each location we're in, it's going to be different based on their revenues. But yeah, we do Google AdWords, Instagram, Facebook. We do some mailers. Phoenix, we do a lot of billboards. We do radio. We do you know mailers, like I said, Valpac. There's some coupon books. We're in some journals. So like in Las Vegas, we do the Las Vegas Review Journal. We do Home Advisor, which is a part of Angie's List. We put some money towards Yelp, Nextdoor. Yeah, so we have a lot of different avenues that we use. But Google AdWords is probably one of the biggest main areas where you get a lot of leads and we put a lot of money towards. Now, are those avenues of marketing investment, are those attracting both commercial and residential clients? Or is it attracting more residential as an example? Or how is that kind of breaking down in your lead generation? 
Yeah, it attracts a lot more residential. That's the main customers we're getting. And we really track our marketing spend based on how many residential leads we get. The commercial side is more of kind of, you know, knocking on doors, building relationships, getting in with the right people that are going to be making a decision or that have multiple properties, maybe for a property manager that they manage. So yeah, the marketing side, most of that is geared towards the residential. On the commercial side, we do some trade shows. We do some networking events, things like that is where we put a little bit of money towards on the commercial side. Commercially, how do you make those kind of initial connections? Is somebody driving around town and saying, well, that building really needs to be painted. Let me go talk to somebody. Or what's the process of kind of networking and then ultimately moving them through the sales funnel and turning them into a customer? Yeah, we do some of that. Absolutely. We drive around and we see a, you know, a sign out or lease and the building looks really bad. Then yeah, we'll absolutely make a phone call there. Our sales reps on the commercial side, they really do a lot on, on LinkedIn where we're posting and, and really trying to make connections with people and in industries that we're, we're trying to get into more. We try to do a lot of referral marketing. So asking our existing customers if they know anybody else and trying to get leads that way. And then also being really present in some of the big networking groups like BOMA, AMA. Those are a couple that we try to be really active in to be in front of and get to know more potential customers and people we could do business with. This is going to bring us to the section of the show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. These questions come from our YouTube community. You go to youtube.com slash upflip and you can join the community and post questions to future podcast guests. So Doug, we're going to try and get through six questions here in about 90 seconds. So here we go. London Underground Tube Trains is asking, how and where do you find staff or subcontractors? Indeed.com is our best way that we find people. Nicholas Habert would like to know, what's the easiest way to start getting your first painting clients? It would be to knock on doors in a neighborhood and ask anybody that they want a free estimate to get their house painted. Quick XFL asks about the pricing structure and equipment layouts for a job. How do you initially develop that bid? You develop it by how many hours the job's going to take and then figure out how much paint costs you're going to have to spend to do that. So you figure out your total costs and then figure out what you want to make and what you want your gross profit margin to be. I'm Bill Gates is asking about marketing strategies and the advertising budget. We just touched on that a little bit, but I'm curious about it for a potentially a startup painting company. What you might recommend as an initial strategy and budget? Yeah, startup, it's going to be a little bit more usually because your revenue, you don't have previous customers word of mouth. So it could be more in the 15 to 20% range, but the more grassroots, knocking on doors, yard signs, things like that you can do, the better. If you could sell your product or service to one celebrity, who would it be? Mark Cuban. Last one here. If there was a movie made about your journey, what would the title be? (laughs) College Dropout to Success. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's going to do it for our fan blitz questions. Again, those come from our YouTube community. You go to youtube.com slash upflip, join the community and post questions to future podcast guests. Doug, just a few more questions from me here on the employee side. You talked about training and developing your people. Can you talk a little bit more about one, how that has helped drive the growth and what are those initial steps to setting up that culture in the business? It started, you know, we did this, you know, even our former mentor, my mentor in business started doing this before he sold to us. So we do weekly, everybody in management, anybody that's a leader, management, sales, office staff, they get a weekly goal setting and review meeting where we sit down, we set goals, go over how they're doing personally in their position in the business. And we set goals for them and really try to help them achieve whatever they want to achieve, whether in, in business and on a personal side. So that's the first step. And then what we've done as well is I've started a leadership class that we teach once a year. It's a six month virtual class. 
we put about eight to 10 people in our company through that. It's called Emerging Leaders. So it's people that want to learn more about leadership and improve their leadership. And we also do a financial peace class. So we try to teach people in our company skills that they may not learn anywhere else. So that's some of the things that we've done to really kind of help instill that culture of growth and that culture of leadership and developing our people. And talk to me about your hiring process. You mentioned Indeed as being one of the places that you look for new employees, but then how do you screen them and what is the process for them from resume submission to actually joining the team? Yeah, so we have an interview question sheet that we've created where we have questions. Whoever's doing the interview needs to score them and make sure that they align with our core values, the position that they're interviewing for, and that they align with you know just the traits and skills that we really want somebody to have. That's really helped make sure that we're getting the best people that we can get to help continue the culture that we've built here in our company. I want to hear a little bit about what your typical work week looks like. How many hours are you working in the business and what are you spending most of your time doing? Yeah, it really depends. You know, some weeks it feels like more, some weeks it's maybe less, but probably on an average 40 to 50. I mean, depending on what's going on or what I'm dealing with, maybe some weeks might be more than that, but you know, minimum 40 hours a week. But like I said, it could be 50 to 60 at, at times. But a lot of my time is spent coaching. So I coach and manage our leadership, some people on our leadership team, which are general managers. And I spend a lot of time doing one on ones with them. I might be sitting in on team meetings that they're running so I can give them feedback afterwards. And that's a big part of my time. And then the other part of my time is kind of looking out into the future and and strategizing and finding ways for us to improve our current systems in our business or looking for ways for us to continue growing, whether that's the acquisition or, you know, developing a better pipeline for commercial to get more commercial customers. Just really, yeah, looking for ways for us to grow and and be, be better as a company. And how do you determine which things that come towards your plate that you should delegate and which things require your hands on attention? What advice do you have for business owners to help make those determinations? Yeah, that's a tough one. And that's as we've been growing, that's one that I've had to get better at. And I think I've gotten better, but still probably not all the way there. I still like to have my hands probably in too much more than I should. But one thing I would just give some advice for, you know, a business owner on knowing when it's time is, you know, taking time and really training and developing. And if you can find somebody that can do a skill, whatever skill it is, 80 to 90% as good as you, then it's time to give it to them. And it's time for you to do something that's going to maybe make a bigger impact on the business. Because you're never going to be able to grow running a business unless you can develop and train people to do what you're currently doing in your business. Now, as you've been expanding the business, how have you determined that that was the right step? Like, What were the signs that, okay, now is the time for us to add another location? And then how did you plan for that expansion? Well, I don't know if there were necessarily signs <laughs> that it was time to expand. It was more, you know, me and just having a big vision for where I want our company to go and saying, okay, we can do a lot of it, sure, here in Arizona, but I feel like five years down the road, if we're in more locations and we've been developing and offering great opportunities to more people in more cities, then that's going to naturally and just organically grow at a faster rate than just doing it in one location. So yeah, so I guess the the signs were, you know, I want to grow. I want us to be able to help more people get their house or building painted by a great reputable company. And I want to offer more opportunities for more people in the painting industry. And I feel like we can do that as well or better than anybody else. How important is location for a painting company? Why did you choose to expand to where you did? And what were those factors in choosing those places? 
Yeah, it is really important. I mean, one thing you've got to pick a city that's got a population that is going to make sense that you feel like you can grow the business for us at least. I mean, I want to grow any location we're in where you want to get the business to at least $5 million in revenue. So we got to make sure at least you have the population there to do that. And a, a city that's growing is also a key factor. And then as well is, is climate, right? We look for cities and locations that we can go to that we can paint exteriors, whether it's at least ideally year round, but at least, you know, eight, nine months out of the year. So yeah, that climate and being able to help with revenue is is a big factor. A few more kind of nuts and bolts questions about operating the company. What software tools are you using to manage workflow and team communication? Yeah, like I mentioned before, our CRM system, Service Titan, has been just a huge helper to us as a company to be able to communicate better internally, communicate better with our customers, and to be able to quickly help us know our numbers much better than we did in the past. So Service Titan, our CRM is the, the biggest one. Then we use Google Sheets. That's probably the other main tool that we use. But Service Titan is the main driver for our internal and external communication. And when a customer first calls, what are some of those key pieces of information to gather from that customer? Yeah, we got to get all their information. So we got to get their address, phone number, email address, all that. We always want to find out how they heard about us. So we've got a ton of different tracking numbers. So usually when they call us, it pops up right in our CRM system of what number they're calling. So we usually get that right there. But if we don't, we always ask them how they heard about us. And then we also want to find out to help our salespeople when they get out there. We want to find out what their time frame is, when they want to get their house or building painted, if they have any other quotes, and which one of our, our three paint packages they ideally would want to use. Incredible. So we get that initial information. What then comes next? Can you take us from that phone call to the actual finishing of the job and kind of a big picture scenario? Yeah. So next would be our our salesperson would call them the night before their estimate is scheduled. And then they would show up on time with a smile on their face the next day, meet with the customer, do our our seven step sales process, and hopefully close the job right there on the spot. And then they would get the customer scheduled. And then in between that time, which is usually depending on the time of the year, one to two, maybe even three or four weeks from when they get scheduled to when their job actually starts, you know, our office is going to communicate with them, make sure we know what colors they want. We'll get a deposit. We'll let them know what time our painters will be there. And then our painters will show up that first morning, again, with a smile on their face. They'll walk around with the customer, going over the job, making sure they know exactly what we're doing. We're all on the same page. They'll do the job, which is typically on average a two to four day job. Once they finish, they'll walk around again with the customer, do a final inspection, make sure everything looks good, collect final payment, and then ask for a review. And then we'll be on our way and on to the next job. What advice do you have about choosing suppliers for paint and equipment for the business? How do you go about vetting a potential new supplier and how do you go about making sure that you're making the right choice? Yeah, as we've grown, you know, we've grown here in Phoenix, especially along with another with our supplier that's grown a ton as well. So, and that's Sherwin Williams. Used to use a lot of Dun Edwards, which we still do use a lot of Dun Edwards, but we've really shifted a little more towards Sherwin Williams just because they give us really good customer service. If there's any issues with any of their paint or issues in a store, they help us out. They take care of us, and also they make it really easy to get paint. I mean, we paint jobs all over the valley, all over Phoenix, all over. Las Vegas, all over Albuquerque, and they have the most stores to make it easy for our guys to get paint. So it's a lot easier geographically and saves us a lot of time and labor costs by having a store closer to a job site than having to drive farther if there's only a few stores in the whole city. 
What's electric static painting and what are the pros and cons of offering that service? It's kind of a, a higher end and a more durable way to paint. Typically metal is what we do. You know, you have a charge and it's a special type of sprayer that you use and you place, you know, the charge on one side of the metal, one part of it, and then the paint, and then you spray it through this machine and it really eliminates a lot of overspray and helps give you a durable, longer lasting finish. The machines can be really expensive. It's usually, you know, somewhere between ten to fifteen thousand dollars for electrostatic machine, but it's an investment, right? And it's an investment that can pay returns by getting jobs and you can usually charge more for those types of jobs as well. So that maybe even be one of the answers to this question, but I'm curious about current trends or shifts within the painting industry and how can new owners take advantage of some of those new trends? I'd say a trend would be, you know, in the past, sometimes companies have really shied away from using better paint because they're afraid of the costs and afraid of passing that cost along to the customer. But I'd say a trend is really customers want to have their houses painted and look better longer. So one trend would definitely be just using higher quality paints. We've really made a big push and big focus on that the last four to five years. And it's cut down on our warranty costs. It's cut down on any touch-up costs. And it's really just given our customers a better product, which is what they want. What would you describe as being a fatal mistake that painting companies make that would cause them to struggle or fail? Number one fatal mistake is not knowing your numbers. So a lot of painting companies I talk to, companies, you know, every month, I'm probably talking to a few different companies and a lot of them just don't know their numbers. They don't know their revenue. They don't know their job costing. They don't know their gross profit margin. A lot of times their labor and paint is really high and they don't even know it. So not knowing your numbers would be the most fatal mistake for sure. If you could pick the one thing that people take from this interview, what would it be? And we didn't get into it a ton, but any business owner, I would say to get a coach, get a mentor. You know, I have a business coach I meet with every month. And I really think that that's been a big part of our success as well. And I would say any business owner needs to have somebody that can point them in the direction that they need to go and show them things that maybe they can't see when they're in the day to day and they get caught up in the weeds at times. You need somebody that can help give you a different perspective. What's your favorite business book and why? Book I already mentioned, Good to Great. That's my favorite business book. Favorite personal development book though is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Doug, where can people learn more about you and Arizona Painting Company? For me personally, LinkedIn is probably the place where I post or do the most social media activity. But for our company, you can go to ArizonaPaintingCompany.com, all spelled out. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, any of those. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. A reminder to our listeners, you can find businesses for sale in a variety of niches on the Upflip listings. Or if you're thinking of opening a new business from scratch, you can go to the Upflip Hub for advice and knowledge resources Doug Karras, owner and CEO of Arizona Painting Company. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Really been a great time discussing business with you. 